welcome to This Week in Theater, courtesy of the Broadway Radio Network. I am Broadway star's Jennifer McHugh. And I am Broadway Radio's Matt Tamanini. This Week in Theater is a bi-weekly podcast talking about regional theater productions around the U.S. This week, we will be talking about theaters in Roswell, Georgia, Ventura, California, as well as Miami Beach, Florida, and some national tours. Matt, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Jen? I'm doing pretty well. So, I didn't tell you who I was talking to this week no. or or the show or anything because it is a very special show and it is a very special anniversary. So, I spoke to Chris Butler, and you may know him from his um, time in 110 Degrees in the Shade with one Miss Audrey McDonald in 2007. He's also appeared in television shows such as The Good Fight, Designated Survivor, True Blood, Major Crimes, and 24. The reason I spoke to him is that he is the star and co-director of Twilight, Los Angeles, 1992 mm. by Anna DeVere Smith. It's going to be at the Rubicon Theater in Ventura, California, which is about an hour north of Los Angeles, and it is opening on the 30th anniversary of the Rodney King verdict. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, <laughs> for those who don't know, uh, Twilight, Los Angeles, 1992, is a one-person show. Whoever is performing is performing upwards of 30-some characters. It is a version of something called verbatim theater, where the script was created from the actual interviews. And some of the characters Chris will be portraying include Maxine Waters, LAPD Police Chief Daryl Gates, truck driver Reginald Denny, Charlton Heston, opera singer Jesse Norman, as well as many Los Angeles residents who were affected by what I learned is now referred to as the LA Uprising. The show was nominated in 1994 for a Tony, but had the misfortune of being up against Angels in America Perestroika. We had a really good conversation. I had mentioned to you, Matt, that it was a little emotional. Um, Chris Butler is a black man. He now lives in Los Angeles, but did not in 1992. So we got to talk a little bit about what it means 30 years later, um, being able to come here on the anniversary of such a significant event and perform this one-man show, one-person show, um, on the 30th anniversary. And the best part is, I get to go to the opening night. Awesome. <laughs> so here is my wonderful conversation with Chris Butler. All right, so Chris Butler. This is with the Rubicon Theater, which is in Ventura. And for those who don't know, that's about an hour, hour and a half north of Los Angeles, depending on the traffic. <laughs> um, that's right. What's what kind of a what size of a theater is the Rubicon? Would you say? Oh, it's a it's a couple hundred seats. Um, uh, it's a, it's a nice small size theater. It's been the Rubicon has been uh, functioning for for quite some time now. Uh, Carolyn Burns and Jim O'Neill uh, started it uh, a, a good good many years ago now because uh, there wasn't a lot of a lot of theater in uh, Ventura County, uh, at least not a lot of professional quality theater in Ventura County. And they, they've built a, a nice a nice following up there. A good amount of people come up from Los Angeles uh, to, to see the theater there, um, as well as people in the Santa Barbara area and um, just the Ventura and Oxnard area um, as well. Uh, I got associated with them uh, probably 
15 years ago uh, with the production of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, and then I've been, I've worked with them periodically throughout the years after that. It's a beautiful little converted church, a medium-sized converted church that they've, that they've built a, a, a nice, a nice theater out of. And it's, uh, yeah, easily the, you know, some of the, uh, best theater that uh, you can see in that area for sure and, and certainly worth the drive up from 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 LA to, to catch to catch a good show. This new production is a production of the Anna Devere Smith play called Twilight Los Angeles 1992. Um, for those who don't know, it was written about the uh, reaction to the Rodney King verdict. I've seen it written as the LA riots. I've seen it written as the uprising, the rebellion. Is there a preference that you have? Um, I, um, it's, it's most known as the riots. The LA riots is, is what is what everybody knows it as. Um, I think it's um, more interesting to try to start to reframe it as as the uprising um, or, uh, is, or, or the rebellion. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's known throughout history as this thing. But also, what happens is you then frame it in your mind uh, as this as this one thing. Uh, but I think it is more interesting and more appropriate to refer to it as either a, a rebellion or the uprising. I, I personally prefer the uprising, uh, but I'm not offended by the term L.A. riots because that's how it is coined in history and how we all know it and all of us know it in history as the L.A. riots. And so that does uh, and everybody then it's a good touchstone so that we all know what we're talking about. But it would be very nice if it was if, if in the future, we all knew it as the LA Uprising. So for those who don't know, this is a one-person show. Um, Anna DeVere Smith had conducted real-life interviews with Los Angelinos um, about the riots, including Chief Gates, uh, Reginald Denny, Maxine Waters. So you're the star and the co-director of this production, correct? That's right. That's right. And you're co-directing with Jenny Sullivan. And as the star, how many roles are you portraying in this production? Um, I think it's somewhere around 30 different characters, perhaps, maybe maybe a little bit more than that, between 30 and 40 different characters. Uh, and there are, it's a whole, it ranges from characters that, like you said, um, the people that were actively involved in it, like Reginald Denny, who was, who was beaten, and, and, uh, and, and participants in the riot, um, and uh, Chief Gates, uh, Daryl Gates, um, as well as uh, as well as people of note like Cornell West, who has something to say about it. Senator Bill Bradley, uh, you know, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, and then also just people from the city that were that were affected by it, whether they lived in in the areas in which the, the uprising took place, or people that just lived in the city and experienced the city during that time. Uh, so it's probably, I think it's around 30 to 40 different characters. Uh, when I uh, when I originally read the piece uh, and felt that I so desperately needed to do it, or less, that somebody needed to do it, that it was important to be doing it, especially on the 30th anniversary of the uprising, which is April 29th. And so we, we are actually doing it. Our opening night is the 30th anniversary. Uh, when, I, uh, when I first read it, I was like, oh, yeah, somebody's got to do this. And then I said yes to it and then said, oh, my goodness, this is a beast. And I don't know how uh, 
Anna, uh, you know, was able to pull this off. I'd actually knew how she was able to pull it off because we're pulling it off. But it's just such a huge undertaking uh, and it's such a, a big, momentous piece of, of theater. Uh, and to do it as one character, uh, as one person being the lens of it is very exciting and very daunting at the same time. Now, it's referred to as a type of theater called verbatim theater. Could you explain to people what that is? Like, are you playing these individual characters or are you playing someone who's talking to these individual characters or both? So what Anna did um, is, uh, uh, Anna, I don't know her personally, um, but what Anna DeVere Smith did was she interviewed about 300 people uh, after after the riots took place and for a period of time after the riots. So she interviewed all of these people and she recorded those interviews and then she pieced sections of them together. Uh, and so the, most of the play plays as a series of monologues that sort of take us more or less chronologically from before the riots, from uh, the beating of Rodney King and the death of Latasha Harlins and all the events that led up to the trial of, of the police officers who beat Rodney King through the riots and then through the federal trial. And so she pieced all of these interviews together. And most of the interviews come across as someone who's talking to Anna DeVere Smith or talking to an interviewer, but she's also pieced some of them together in a way that they could be presented slightly differently than that. And it, but it is verbatim the interviews that took place with all of the uhs and the ands and the stutters and the repeated phrasing and the funny ways in which we actually talk to one another as opposed to the written word. You know, a, a, play, a typical playwright would craft a sentence in which it has a particular flow that you know, someone would uh, deliver easily on stage. And what this person, and what when you just take someone for as in the way that they're actually speaking, uh, it's a little bit more difficult and a little bit trickier to find the rhythms and exactly how that how that particular person is speaking. So it is actually you actually recall back to the actual person in that actual moment actually delivering those words in live time, and that's how we're presenting it. And that's how I'm trying to attack it and trying to approach it. Uh, so it is. It, it comes across as, as partial, you know, interviews. Sometimes talking to the audience. Sometimes talking just to the interviewer. Sometimes you're talking to some imaginary person on stage um, with you in a group or something like that. Uh, but yes, it is verbatim theater. So she recorded these interviews and then transcribed them onto paper. And she's adamant that that's how they have to be delivered. So we're, you know, it's kind of like doing Shakespeare. In some ways, because, you know, in, in Shakespeare, you're like, I'm not even sure what the meaning of this sentence is until you have to really delve into it and, and really piece it apart. You know, because there's also people from different cultures. It's Korean Americans and Mexican Americans and white Americans and black Americans and Panamanian Americans. Uh, so uh, different people's handle on the English language is different and how they use the English language is different. And you have to tear apart each of these monologues and put them back together in your brain uh, to come up with the flow. Wow, that's really interesting. It must be tough to, because like you said, there are people who are directly involved with everything that happened. And there is also people who are very famous, like Charlton Heston. 
and you know it, it has to be a fine line to walk up between an impression of someone who people know so well whether from movies or from being on the news and finding the character so what's your process in figuring that out for me i'm trying not to do uh, just impressions of a person i'm trying to deliver those person's words in that as they were delivered at that time. So I definitely am uh, getting their inflections and getting their vocal quality and uh, and trying to make them as, as specific as possible. But at the same time, um, I'm not going back to these, I don't have the source material that, uh, that Anna DeVere Smith had. She actually did those interviews with those people, recorded those interviews, and had those had those interviews live for her to to draw from. Uh, so I am putting together a person um, based on the information that I've given, and a lot of the, a lot of the characters, like you say, are able to find in the media and from Google and you know things like that. And uh, and so those I am trying to be more specific and more true to what uh, you know, a recognizable, uh, a recognizable depiction of a real life person that that can be easily accessed. And, and hopefully I'm doing a good job of that. But at the same time, I don't consider myself a, a mimic. I don't consider myself an impersonator. Um, but um, when you when you listen to my, my Bill Bradley, I'm hoping that you will, will say, oh, yeah. I see Bill Bradley there, or oh yeah, I see Maxine Waters there. Um, but at the same time, I don't. Uh, I, I'm not uh, uh, limiting myself or constricting myself by saying, "Well, if I'm not doing a great Maxine Waters, then you are a perfect, a perfect Maxine Waters." I, I can't express and I can't deliver her words and deliver what she was expressing in that moment with clarity and conviction and passion. Uh, so it is a, it's sort of a, a, a blend of who that person is and what that person was saying in that time. Now, then there are other characters who, who you don't know who they are and you can't find them in the media. Uh, and, and, and Anna DeVere Smith gives some description of their character or their demeanor, um, but not always. She, in some, she does that more than others. Some, some characters, but she's very specific on, you know, their build and their, their vocal quality. And, and some, she just says what they do for a living uh, or, or their nationality uh, or their background. And uh, I find those to be even trickier for me personally, uh, because then I'm like, well, now I have to make this into uh, a, a real person that I don't have the source material for. Uh, so it's a different kind of challenge. So I'm doing two different uh, two different challenges. One, I'm trying to figure out, you know, how to make, you know, how to do Maxine Waters, and this other one, I'm trying to figure out um, Octavio Sandoval. I don't know anything about this guy, um, so I'm doing two different things for two different characters. But hopefully, that comes together as into one uh, collage. It's a remarkable amount of work. Um, are, are there any roles that you are finding? you had trouble with more than others? Well, going into it, my biggest, I don't know if the word is fear, trepidation, um, was uh, taking on uh, cultures that I don't have any connection with. 
Um, I have a connection with the white American culture. I have a connection with the black American culture. But I have no connection with Korean American culture or the Korean culture. Um, and so trying to you know, uh, take on these Korean characters, um, there's the fear that, you know, I don't want to uh, be offensive. I don't want to be, um, I don't want to, you know, completely miss the mark on this. Uh, but at the same time, embracing it. And also realizing that I am still, um, I am one person. I am. I, this is all coming from the from the perspective of the the performer who has decided to be the vessel, the vessel for for Los Angeles' story. Um, and and it, it, you know, I'm not a Korean American. And they'll look at me and they'll know I'm not a Korean American. Uh, and so that's a fact. Um, so. I then released myself from some of that, uh, from some of those, from some of those fears, uh, because I, because the piece as a whole um, is is bigger than that. But that, but I have definitely, you know, the Panamanian characters and the, you know, the Mexican American characters, you know, not wanting to do a, you know, what could be misinterpreted as a send up, you know, of that. Um, you know, because, you know, we're also in a place in American theater where we're very sensitive about who's playing what. Uh, and so that's a conversation that you uh, could have is that should he even be doing this? Should you even be doing that? But because I'm playing all of Los Angeles and the sort of the conversation is we are all Los Angeles. This story is all of our story. And we should all be uh, we should all be personalizing everyone's story. Um, so the perfection of my Korean dialect is slightly less important than me being able to uh, passionately, correct, uh, passionately portray that, that Korean American's perspective and view on, on what took place at that time. Uh, so those characters are certainly, um, and, and you know, the characters outside of my culture are, are certainly something that I'm more sensitive to. And other than that, uh, it's just interesting what character, what, who speaks in a way that sticks in your brain or who speaks in a style that uh, you can immediately access and some others that you have to work a little bit harder for. There were some characters that I thought, oh, I read it on the page. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be easy. This is going to, you know, I'm right with her. I got, I got her flow down when I read it on the page. And as soon as I try to stick it into my brain, uh, I'm like, oh, she's got just enough idiosyncrasies that I can't get a, two sentences out. <laughs> um, so it's been an interesting process to see who actually, you know, whose flow that I can glom onto and whose flow is a little bit more elusive for me. Switching gears, um, you are co-directing this with Jenny Sullivan. How do you approach this from a directing standpoint um, having to create all these different characters, are you using lighting? Are you using set pieces? Um, all of the above. What was your process with Jenny to come up with how to stage this show? Um, in Anna Devere Smith's description in her play, because in, in the in, in her play she had, she you know talks a lot about the the settings of each of these scenes. You know, they're sitting on this type of chair, and you know they're in this kind of room. Uh, and we, I think, very quickly we realized that in a in a one person production of this, um, on a on a medium sized stage, that that's just not 
Uh, we can't do that. You can't, you know, you can't have 30 different chairs. Um, and, and so we've, we've, we're using minimal set pieces. And also we, uh, our set designers coming up with a, a stage and a set um, that will have many different areas that, you know, playing spaces sort of on the stage itself and sit places where you can sit and perch and, and be on a slightly different perspective. Um, throughout the stage. Uh, and then we will be using a lot of, of lighting uh, to create different areas and different spaces and different moods. And also something that is very important in the piece is that it actually uses footage from, uh, from the time. Uh, so there's actually specific places where the you know, Rodney King uh, beating is, is portrayed uh, through video as well as um, uh, the beating of Reginald Denny is portrayed through video. Uh, and so there's, we're also using some projections uh, to also uh, uh, create more, more of the story with us. Were you, you, were you here in 92 in, in Los Angeles? I was Angeles? not. You weren't? I Where were not. you? I was in North Carolina. I was graduating from high school. I was in my senior year of high school in North Carolina. Uh, but it was something that we were all affected by, but not the way, not in the way Los Angeles was affected by it. Uh, and it, uh, but I've been in Los Angeles now for over twenty years, uh, and uh, and I actually just recently, um, before signing on to this play, moved to Koreatown, uh, and then right after I moved to Koreatown, which is where a lot of a lot of the, the riots took place, a lot of things that happened during the riots took place in the Koreatown area. Um, uh, so I recently moved here and then this play came up and I sort of thought that well, that's kind of the magical meant to be uh, situation um, but yes yeah, so Los Angeles is my adopted home and I, and I wasn't here uh, but it has I, I just felt that it was because I've been here and because I consider myself an Angelino that, that you know, I felt that I, I when given the opportunity that I couldn't give up the chance to to talk about it, especially with what's you know, going on now, the fact that you know not only is it the 30th year since the riots um, or the uprising, it's also the fact that you know when I'm doing these monologues and I'm working on these pieces, it's sadly so little seems to have changed. You know, so if you if you take out you know you know the fact that nobody refers to their cell phone in this play, other than that, and you take out the, the, the names, the specific names, take out the name Rodney King, you could put in a different name, you could put in a Maude Arbery, you could put in another, you know, countless other names. And the fact that that hasn't changed, I think also makes the, the story of the LA uprising, a story of America and the story of the state of America today, um, and which also, makes it such an important piece to be working on and such an important piece to be doing now because sadly it's so so similar to what uh to what was happening then was happening now yeah that um has to be an emotional journey every night to know that you're speaking words from 30 years ago that that it hasn't changed um i think we have similar age range because I too graduated from high school in the early nineties 
in on the East Coast and then have lived in Los Angeles for over 20 years. Um, what do you find as now a, your adopted home as a resident of Los Angeles and thinking back to that kid in 1992, um, watching this go down because as a 17 or 18 year old watching it on TV and then 30 years later, kind of immersing yourself in, in what is now your adopted home. What do you go through when you think about these past 30 years going from where you were to where you are now? For me, it's been a slow, slow growth, a slow opening of my eyes, a gradual realization of the state of our nation. Um, I think as a young as a young man, um, I experienced racism and I was aware of it and I was you know, I, I was a victim of it. Um, but I had no real deep perspective or understanding of its societal implications, how, how, how big and vast and how much it actually dictated um, our lives and our daily lives and our opportunities um, classism, racism, sexism, how they, as institutions, how much they actually dominate our society and our concept of the American dream and what can be accomplished and, what, and how, we, how we watch television and how we interact with others. And it has been a slow process for me, a, a constant, um, but slow process of understanding of how deep-seated and how, how vast the veins of, of racism, um, institutional racism, and have invaded and pervaded American society and society in, in, you know, in the world as well, but in American society particularly. Um, and it, uh, the older I get, almost the more overwhelming it becomes. Uh, and that is a scary thing for me, uh, but also it also becomes increasingly more important to me that something, that, that, that I continue to do something about it. Um, that I consider at least, at least talk about it, at least, you know, make it a uh, make it as uh, bring it as much to the forefront as it actually is because it's something that is kind of hidden I think and you know and you know it's obvious to some and not so obvious to others uh, it's taboo topics in a lot of, in a lot of ways you know in a lot of, in a lot of places uh, that we just don't talk about those things or they're not as bad as we think they are and um, it can't it can't be as bad as you think it is um, and so it has increasingly, you know, throughout my lifetime, become uh, more clear, more obvious, and more important to me. You had mentioned earlier that you are opening on April 29th, which will be the anniversary of the verdict. So what do you hope that people walk away from this production with, knowing how significant it is, not only for 
this city, but for the whole world as as we as everyone tuned in to see what had just happened. This piece is it's a dialogue. It's the round table discussion, it's the town hall that we wish could take place. Um, and it, it includes everybody's perspective. And there's characters in here that you will agree with every word they say. And then there's characters in here you will disagree with every word they say. And when I use the word you, I mean anybody, anybody from any walk of life um, uh, or any perspective will find characters in here that they think that they're on board with or characters in here that they find completely offensive. And even more interestingly, they'll find characters that they agree with part of the time, and then they'll say something that they completely disagree with, or, some, or vice versa. A character they find abhorrent who will suddenly say something that they find that resonates for them. And I think the important thing is that we have a dialogue, that we have these conversations. Twilight, the play Twilight doesn't, I don't think it specifically tells you what to do. I don't think it specifically tells you what to think. It lays it all out there. Now, there's certainly, you know, we, you know, be better. You know, we can all be better. Uh, I don't think anyone can argue with that, uh, with that theme. Um, but it is a, it is a very complicated fabric uh, society, and uh, and a multicultural society. And Los Angeles truly is. Um, an incredibly multicultural place with a lot of lot of nuances. And I think we can, I think we should walk away from this play understanding some of those nuances. Um, um, and I hesitate to tell someone what to think or what to do, but I hope that when they see this play, they will be encouraged to think and to do. And I think that that's what's most important um, because when we do think and we do do, and we are inspired, good things come from that. You know, it, uh, you know we, we move forward when we are thinking and taking action and coming together and understanding different people's perspectives and different people's points of view and I think that this, that that's, that Twilight is asking us to do that. There's, there's so many people with so many perspectives, um, but they're all asking us, I think they're all asking us to grow and to learn and to understand and to, and to strive for understanding. Don't just sit in your little box and take it from your little angle, from your little window that you're looking out of um, to, and that no one says it in the play, but to walk a mile in someone else's shoes, um, you'd be surprised how far you actually will get. Twilight Los Angeles 1992 is running at the Rubicon Theater Company in Ventura, California from April 29th through May 15th. And I think if you're anywhere near, I think this would be a really good opportunity to see some amazing work. So I'm not going to lie, I did get a little emotional and had to frequently mute myself and sip some water as I listened to him talk, but uh, you know I'm an Angelino now and I wasn't then, just like him, and I'm very excited to go see this and I can't wait to report back to you and to our listeners on this experience. 
because I think it's going to be something that I'll never forget. Yeah. It's been a while since you've been to a play, hasn't it, Chen? Yes. The last play I went to, I believe, was Come From Away in the fall of 2019. Can't imagine what could have kept you away from crowded theaters in, the, <laughs> in that time. And that was a musical. I mean, the last time I sat for a straight play, I maybe rabbit hole in the early 2000s. I really don't remember the last time I went to a straight play, but he was so passionate and so intriguing that I, I couldn't turn it down. Okay, so Matt, let's talk about who you interviewed this week. All right, I interviewed not one, but two people for a show this week, and they are the creators behind a world premiere new musical that is coming to the Georgia Ensemble Theater beginning on March 31st. The name of the musical is The Pretty Pants Bandit, and the musical is written by some of Atlanta's most popular and well-known stage performers who have since moved from Atlanta, but are bringing their collective work together back to the city. They are Broadway alum Chase Peacock and my dear, dear friend Jessica DiMaria. Chase Peacock appeared on Broadway in the original Broadway company of American Idiot, and both he and Jessica, as we talk about in our conversation, did many, many shows in Atlanta. Chase is an Atlanta native, while Jessica is a New York native. Since the pandemic, both of them have actually moved to New York and continue to work there, but they started their collaboration not only on this show, but on other works while they were still in Atlanta, so there, there was no better place to bring the world premiere of this musical than the Georgia Ensemble Theater. The show itself is actually based on a real-life figure named Marie Baker, who had the name of the Pretty Pants Bandit. She was uh, a 1930s, for lack of a better term, stick-up artist where she would rob people and where the Pretty Pants Bandit nickname comes from. I'm not going to spoil because Jessica tells me in the interview and I did not know this and it absolutely blew my mind and made me even more excited to see this show. But being friends with Jessica, I have seen the work that these two have put into the creation of this show over the years and they are both very, very excited to have it come to the stage finally this coming week. The demos for the show are available on all streaming services. If you want to listen to Jessica and Chase sing the songs from the show, the score is made of, uh, of varying types of pop and rock music, even though it is set in the 1930s. It does take place in a very multicultural area of Miami, and that is reflected in their cast, something that both Chase and Jessica told me was very important to them. So that is enough of me explaining things. Let's get into the conversation with Chase Peacock and Jessica DiMaria. All right, so my first question is is one that I am always fascinated by because you two are both actors and performers by trade that have now transitioned into writing with this show. How did that change happen for both of you individually? And then perhaps more importantly to this topic, how did that transition happen for the two of you together? Jessica, I'll, I'll start with you because I know... Uh, you know, one of the things that we talked about a lot years ago was the first musical that you co-wrote, which was not with Chase. Uh, but how did your change and evolution from performer to writer start to happen? Uh, it was fairly accidental. <laughs> <laughs> I had been um, I had been the Young Playwrights Festival coordinator for Horizon Theater in Atlanta, which 
meant that I was consistently evaluating, editing, and adjudicating um, the plays of graduate students who were pursuing their master's degree in playwriting. And so um, a friend of mine at the time had um, a collection of songs and a portion of a book um, for the last time we were here that they just, he just kind of um, tossed at me. and was like, can you take a look and sort of help me out? And then I just became really vested in the project and we ended up collaborating on that. And I realized that it was something I loved doing. Um, I enjoyed the challenge and I, I really liked um, coming from being a performer. I really liked having sort of control, <laughs> some modicum of control over you know what, what was going to be performed. Like I, I wanted to be a part of creating things that I as an actor would wanna participate in. Um, and that sort of started it. And then it was, it, I kind of like petered off. And then and then Chase and I met as actors in a production of Damn Yankees. And um, Chase and Jeremiah, my previous collaborator, uh, knew each other from growing up. And um, Chase knew that I'd been helping him and sort of posed the question to me, would I be interested in potentially working with him? And I was like, oh, I guess. And the rest is history. <laughs> and the rest uh, is history. <laughs> Chase, was it a similar progression for you as well? Um. In a way, I actually um, I actually started in the sort of songwriting world when I was uh, in eighth grade. I mean, I, I had been taking guitar lessons and stuff and I put a little rock band together and I started writing songs. And that's what I did for a while. We would play around. I mean, I was in 10th grade playing at the Masquerade with this rock and roll band with songs that we wrote. Oh, wow. And like, we were playing with, you know, touring acts that these guys are like, you kids are good. <laughs> and for people who don't know, the Masquerade is a huge, you know, rock club <laughs> venue in Atlanta. Yeah, it was. We had no business being there, especially, <laughs> especially with the crowds. Um, and then somewhere along the way in high school, my sister had done like theater. She did like straight plays. And I went to one and I was like, that was really cool. And then I started getting on stage. Uh, I, I auditioned for one production and I could sing because I was a singer for our band. And then, so the rest of that was history. I fell in love with performing uh, on stage, literally moved to New York after high school and, and started making a career for myself on stage. The songwriting never left. I was always, I always had uh, equipment and I was writing songs. I actually wrote a musical back in high school uh, in <laughs> senior year that we were lucky enough to perform, but I haven't done anything like that since then. Uh, I always knew I wanted to go back to it because I was still writing like pop music and trying to do fun stuff like that on the side. Um, but then being in rooms, I was lucky enough to be in the room for a few, you know, to be in some original brand new musicals uh green day's american idiot and then uh i ended up doing uh bull durham at the alliance which at the time was en route to like try to make it to broadway and i remember being in the room and hearing them discuss ways to make act two work and like all this stuff and i was sitting on the side like i know how to fix this you know i know what i would do <laughs> i now i want to know the answers but we won't get into that because they, they still put out a press release like every six months or so like the show is still coming to broadway and uh, yeah. <laughs> i really felt like i knew the answers and i was like wait a minute i need to like get back into this and uh you know, sure enough that, you know, the universe made Damn Yankees happen. And I was like, aren't you a writer? I want to really write some musicals. And then, yeah, as you said, the rest was history. So basically baseball musicals have been the impetus for you transitioning back to a writer. Uh, so every yes. musical you do from now on has to have uh, baseball in it. But um, so 
so I know that you guys have collaborated on a couple other works, which I want to get into a little bit here in a second. But where did the idea for the Pretty Pants Bandit, first off, a great musical name. Um, but <laughs> where <you>. where <laughs> did the idea for this story come from? Yeah. So um, when Chase and I were brainstorming what we wanted our next project to be, you know, we kind of said like, number one, it's got to be a large scale, you know, like shoot for the stars, big musical, which was contrary to the works that we worked on before. And then the second caveat was that we wanted it to be a female driven narrative with a really strong heroine. And I had been sort of sitting on this woman. So I had done research for a role that I was playing uh, several years before I was playing a female gangster. And I found this list of like 19 female gangsters you may not know about. And Marie Baker, the pretty pants bandit was on that list. And I found it so fascinating because what made her notorious was that she pants to the men that she robbed. And I said, I don't know, this feels like it Wait, is musical. Hold on, hold on, hold on, Jessica. <laughs> I, like I've, I've listened to the demos. I've, I've seen the press releases for the story. I did not realize like, like she pulled their pants down. Is that what you're telling so, me? Basically, when she's holding up these shops, uh, her last little uh, gift to the people she's held up as she leaves is making them drop their trousers at some point. Um, oh my just god! Leaving them literally with their pants around their ankles. Um. <laughs> I can't wait to see it. I am now so excited to see that now. Yeah, so many pairs of boxers. You were going to see. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and so I kind of pitched the idea to Chase and we thought, gosh, this could be cool. And, um, you know, there's not much about her historically beyond the headlines. And so we were sort of gave ourselves the freedom or given the freedom to invent a storyline. You know, what kind of woman feels the need to humiliate men in this way? Um, why would she do it? Why did she do it? And it it led to like a really, in, in my opinion, a story that while it is a heist adventure, it's a romance, it's hilarious. It has a really great and powerful story behind, you know, one woman's motivation to try to, you know, teach men a lesson in, in, in a lot of ways. Well, and what's interesting about this is I'm kind of going through all the, the credits and everything. You guys are both listed as being the creators of the show, but there doesn't seem to be any at least official differentiation as to who's writing book, who's writing mu- music, who's writing lyrics. Chase, is that pretty accurate to the way you collaborate? And if so, how do you go about bouncing ideas off of each other and settling on one thing that is going to make it to the page and then eventually the stage itself. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty accurate. I mean, we just kind of decided a long time ago that it was, you know, it's just got to be a really, really open collaboration with no, you know, you, you can't hold back. You got to say whatever's on your mind and best idea sticks um, down to the I mean, you know, there's there's folks that take lead. I can't write a lick of dialogue, but I can stand up and act out what I think should happen for Jessica <laughs> like, <laughs> and stuff like that. And and we storyboard, you know, from the very ground up for all of our shows, it was uh, because we've, yeah, I, I take pride in the fact that we've created original stories we haven't gotten from uh, books or, you know, movies or anything like that. It's like, what if this happened? Now let's put a, you know, cork board on the wall and start storyboarding some stuff. And so that is, you know, from the very get, a complete collaboration. We're just deciding, you know, what the drama of the show is, who the characters are and where the songs live. And then, uh, you know, uh, she she definitely takes the lead on the uh, the 
scene work and and writing the dialogue and she's an absolute genius at it and i definitely will write and i will definitely try to catch the vibe of the songs and stuff like that and get some tracks going and then we completely collaborate on finishing them off and doing the lyrics and uh how they fit into the story it's yeah i don't know it's just a big old big old collaboration yeah chase chase is the melody guy as we like to call him (laughs) (laughs) So, so much of the, so much of theater itself is collaboration is part of what you are doing here as creators. Is that rooted in some of the collaboration that you found as actors? Have you learned things from your process as performers about what you did like about the collaborative process versus what you didn't like and anything like that, that you've kind of brought into your partnership and then moving that partnership from just you two to a whole company of folks at Georgia Ensemble? I, I think so. I mean, it's, there's, I've, I've been lucky enough and I'm sure Jessica too has been in uh and funny enough, it's one of GET's staple quotes. It's the best idea wins. Uh, and if you're, if you're in a room like that, we're all just trying to create the very best thing that it can be that speaks to the widest range of people it possibly can. And, and uh, I, I think that's what comes out of it. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, certainly I, I, I thrive in a collaborative environment and I think that that became very clear, like as Chase and my friendship and partnership sort of evolved simultaneously, we kind of felt the same way about that. And, um, and also I think just watching each other and working with each other over the past decade in Atlanta, it led to a tremendous amount of respect for one each other, each other's gifts as performers and, and in other aspects of theater and, it improved our collaboration, I would say, because you have that core of tremendous respect for for one another, um, one another's work, and um, and yeah, and I mean, I absolutely think, you know, every process that you're in as a as a performer or a director or whatever we're doing at that time, um, you learn something from. You learn you you get really positive takeaways, and maybe you get takeaways that say, you know what, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a room, I don't want to ever be part of a room like that anymore. And I certainly don't want to create a room like that anymore. And, and other times you say, gosh, this was such an amazing experience because of X, Y, Z. And I like to think that we, we take all of that and, and put it towards not only our partnership, but again, like you said, like creating a room here at GET throughout this process where everyone feels like they are contributing, that they are thriving and that they're being given the opportunity to share their voice. Yeah. We've, you and I have talked about some of those rooms you did not want to recreate uh, in your career, <laughs> Jessica. So uh, we won't get into those here. But um, but I know, like I, I mentioned earlier, you both did the demos for this show that are available on streaming services if people want to listen to that. Um, and obviously, Chase, you mentioned you would get up and like act out stuff that you could visualize that you wanted. So when it came to the process, and I know you did a, a workshop, um, I think it was last fall or, or whatever, but when you started to get into the process of officially casting the show for this world premiere run what were you looking for to find folks to embody these characters that really for the most part had really just lived not only in your minds but through you as the creators and the performers you know throughout the creation of their uh, of the show i personally think that varies tremendously there is some folks that came in and like you know we we know these characters very very well um and there are some folks that came in and served 
that vision served that vision to a T and you're like, Oh my gosh. Yeah, of course there they are. And then there's some things that have, I learned from that process that have already helped me in my acting and audition career because you see how, oh, important awesome. it, how important it really is. You can go in there and show them who that character is. And conversely, some, some folks did that as well, mm-hmm. came in and were like, oh, we didn't know it, but there's the character. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Is it hard to go from having this idea as the creator and the authority on who these characters are? Is it difficult to be like, oh, no, wait, they've got a better idea just by the sides in the sheet music than I do? Jessica, is that you're laughing? Is that like is that tough to wrestle with? Not like an ego thing, but just like, well, I'm I know what I'm doing. I know what I want. But is is it hard to give that over to allow other people into that creative process, especially before you actually officially hire them? You know, um, honestly, I actually find it really fascinating. I mean, one of the most thrilling things is watching other people interpret what you've created. I mean, at least in my opinion. So I don't find it hard. Um, I find it interesting. And I mean, certainly there are are some things that it's like you, it's hard to describe, but like you almost wrestle with a personal loss. (laughs) You know what I mean? In a lot of ways, like, oh, this version of so-and-so has died, but reborn, they're a phoenix. You know what I mean? But it's it's not hard. It's it's really interesting and it's kind of beautiful. I mean, because every performer, their own personal life experience, the lens through which they see the world is going to influence their take on the material. And that is really awesome to see, especially when the material is is yours, you know. Um, so I, I really find it exciting. And um, and it's been part of the process here at GET, like some things are exactly as we imagine them. And some things are just even more interesting, even more layered and fascinating. In fact, after our designer run last night, I, I told the cast that, you know, it was so amazing to get to meet these characters in the flesh and hang out with them and spend time with them. Because what they've done is given them a kind of life that you can't, you can't just have in your own brain or on the page. Yeah. And I I know Jessica, you and I, I think the last time we saw each other was like the week before you were heading down to Atlanta to do casting. And I know that you both had a lot of ideas about what you wanted your cast makeup to look like. So let's talk about this group of folks. It's been a few years since I've been in Atlanta and and I don't know a lot of these people. Um, And I know neither of you still live in Atlanta, but I'm sure you're more connected with some of these folks than I am. But tell me about this group that you've put together and what makes them special and the right group of people to bring this story to the stage for the first time. You know, it's, um, It's an amazing blend, actually. Like some are people that Chase and I have worked with many times. Some are people that we have never met until this process. And it's like this beautiful blend of that. Um, But it was really important to us to create a cast that not only reflected the community in which we are living and working on this process in Atlanta, but also did a solid job of reflecting the diversity that was, you know, hidden in Miami at the time. Um, So that was a a really big priority for us. But, you know, it's it's um, like our our lead female, for example, um, Anna Dvorak, uh, who plays Marie Baker, is like from my mind, I was like, how has this girl not been serving principals for the last Mm -hmm. five years? She is so outstanding and and really exceptional. And so like that's an issue. That's like an instance where I'm like, this is amazing because I hope that this role changes her trajectory 
like whatever trajectory she was on just kind of skyrocketed in another positive direction, you know? Um, and I, I love that. Um, and, um, I think what's made them the right group of people, Chase and I are very, I don't want to say particular, but it's, it's very important to us, um, that it's good people, solid people, people who are passionate about new work, people who find joy in the process and who want to be there. So a lot of it was just catching vibes and being like, they seem like they'll be into it. Um, and a lot of it was, you know, being like, you know, for example, Skylar Brown, who Chase and I have both worked with multiple times on multiple projects, just knowing that he's going to be an amazing presence in the room and give us all. Um, um, and Fenner Edie is another exceptional um, example of that. And it's, um, and then, you know, it's turned out beautifully because that's exactly what ha what's happened. This cast is incredibly hardworking and they came in so prepared and just ready and excited to work. And part of that is because for a lot of people, it's their first return to live theater since lockdown. And for a lot of people, they just are super thrilled to do new work. And, and, you know, for some, it's an opportunity to play a size role that they've never had the opportunity to play before. And so we're really pleased with, with how it turned out in terms of casting. Yeah. I mean, I can't emphasize that enough. Yeah. And, so Chase, you guys met uh, in Atlanta. Jessica is originally from New York. You are originally from Atlanta. So what was it, why was it important to, or I mean, I mean important, but why, let me ask it this way. How does doing this show in Atlanta uh, impact the trajectory of this show, not necessarily towards the future, but in the creation of this world premiere. Uh, having lived there for a number of years, I, I know the the theater and TV and film scenes in Atlanta are, I mean, outside of New York and LA are, are just about second to none. Um, why was it a, a, a good decision for the Pretty Pants Bandit to happen in Atlanta beyond just the fact that y'all know a bunch of folks in town? <laughs> yeah, I just... I, I think it's to try to, I mean, for many reasons, but, you know, a big one is to shine some light on uh, what's going on in Atlanta. There are some fabulous people and some fabulous performers doing great work. And, uh, and uh, you know, at the same time, there's, there's um, theaters that, you know, I can't really speak for them, but it's it's a little scary to try to take off and do something new and break out of the box. You know what your audiences are into. Yeah. So it's very easy to continue to, uh, you know, do these classic shows and, and do them well. And uh, but it's it, it was important to try to show, at least for me, that there's there's some talent down here that can produce something extraordinary. And and we were so lucky that that GET saw that vision and, and climbed on board. And, you know, James Donatio, our director and, you know, script advisor and all things really helped us get get going and keep the show rolling. It just takes somebody to believe in you. Um, but, yeah, we cultivated these relationships in Atlanta and just so ready to highlight it because there's so many great folks there doing just ridiculously good work and it, it would mean the world to uh you know we all have pipe dreams it would mean the world to take this show to the next level in atlanta and then straight from atlanta to the great white way you know <laughs> in the in the in the same season as bull durham hopefully so 
<laughs> they're gonna get there if they let me mess with Act Two. They just let you mess with Act Two. I know. I, we can put in some calls. I feel like I can send this audio to somebody and, and make Absolutely. it happen. Absolutely. Uh, but speaking of that, you know, like the the full fledged production, Jessica, you mentioned the. Uh, the designers run that you had on Thursday, the 17th, the day before we're recording this interview. What was it like to see the show on its feet, like for real, for real, for the first time oh like gosh. that? Are you getting <laughs> emotional? Is What is yeah, that? Yeah, no, it, it's, um, I mean, one of our actors is actually making compilation compilation video of me crying um, at different points. Oh my God, but, I um, love it. I need that yes, so much. Yes, of course, you know. Yes, you'll get it. Um, but no, it was... So hard to find the words, but I'm pretty sure I left my heart on the floor of the rehearsal studio. Um, it was it was an unreal feeling um, because you know it's it's so disjointed, really, and during the rehearsal process until you see it from start to finish. And I had you know this moment of just disbelief, almost like, oh my god, oh my god, we made this and here it is. And it was the kids, the cast, they were so outstanding and they gave so much passion and dedication. They sounded great. They looked great. And it's just one of those moments where you have to pinch yourself, to be quite honest. Like, this is something we've been working on since 2017. And now I just saw a complete run through with choreo and other voices singing. That's not just a chorus of Chase and Jessica's. And it really um, it was exceptional. And I was profoundly moved and it was incredibly enjoyable to watch you know, the small audience that was there of designers and some of the staff at GET also, you know, watch them react and be moved and laugh and cry and chat about it with each other. It's, it's surreal and wonderful. Does that for, for you guys as performers and writers now do, does the magic of those, whether it's a designer run or a sits probe or, you know, a first performance or an opening night, does that ever go away? Like, is, I mean, obviously it, depends on the project and where you are in your career but like are those events and those milestones in the journey of a of a production are they just as magical as they seem to be for those of us who are just fans on the outside they really are and i can personally say at least for this process i did not let any of those magic moments go unnoticed of course unfortunately i was not there for the designer run but i made sure every moment that you you just pinch yourself because you're in a room and it's kind of what you dream of. There's hustle and bustle. People are moving sets and going over harmonies and practicing choreo and stage managers are talking over stuff with the director and you just sit back and you're like, this is all because we were like, we should write a show about a girl who pulls people's pants down. <laughs> and like, and you did. And we did. And, you know, and you just I didn't take and there was a moment in a rehearsal the other day. I know this is not necessarily speaking to all shows, but I will say anytime there's a sits probe or a full run through of any production, you get the magic flow in and you get excited. Um, But there was a moment where I was like, you know, answering a question for an actor and then looking to our music director, Ali Lingenfelter, to try to figure out a... Uh, an appropriate vamp and then trying to uh, finish off the lyrics for the song with Jessica. And I was like, <laughs> and I was looking left and right. And I was like, this is chaotic beauty. This is where I want to live. This is yeah. where I want to live my life in every moment. It's, it's, it's hard, but it's the good kind of hard. It's incredible. And I, I would not trade it for the world. I'm literally crying right now. <laughs> that tracks that really tracks. Um, <laughs> All right, so I I said I wanted to get to 
one or two of your other projects real quick before we wrap up. But I know I mentioned the the demos for Pretty Pants are available everywhere you can stream things. So people need to listen to that and then go see it at GET. But you also have another show that is available. And I I think it's a different kind of setup that's available on Apple Music and Spotify and all that stuff, too, which is Vivian a ghost story. I don't know if there's a colon or a comma in there, but Vivian, a ghost story. So what, what is that one about? Is, is there any people pulling pants down in that one? Uh, no removal of pants in Vivian. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a deep affection for Vivian. So we actually uh, produced uh, Vivian along with the lyric um, at the lyric studio theater in the square in Marietta back in 2017. And it is a small little family story. It's a folk rock musical about a dad and his two daughters who move to um, a new old house after the death of his wife and their mother. And uh, you get the comma ghost story, so you can imagine what happens next. Um, And it was just one of those things we had set a challenge for ourselves. We're like, we're gonna write and produce a musical within six six months. We're just gonna see if we can do it. And then we did, we did it. (laughs) And it was awesome. And and, uh, the cool thing, about it now is that um, uh, two people out of Los Angeles reached out to us um, and we're in the process of turning Vivian into a musical podcast. And so along with our collaborators in California, we've been rewriting some songs and retooling the script to suit it to a new medium. And it's, it's really incredible again, to see this other one of our works, you know, get new life and get brought forward and uh, it's really awesome. And that's what's available on various streaming services now, or is it a different form? So if people want to, yeah. Yeah. So the, the OG Vivian is available on streaming services now, and you can definitely catch the vibe from, from that um, and get a sense of what the podcast is going to look and sound, look and sound like, sound like. (laughs) (laughs) We understand. We understand. Uh, Yeah. And what I love is from my days in Atlanta, one of my favorite performers, Travis Smith, uh, was in that Vivian. Um, and he has he has a, a history of doing ghost stories in old houses because he was in uh, Ghost Brothers of Darkland County. Uh, Atlanta's one of the other great shows that was Broadway bound from uh, the Alliance that didn't actually ever make it. But uh, your mileage may vary on how great that one was. But anyway, um, wrapping up here now, you are getting ready for the official world premiere of the Pretty Pants Bandit coming up in just less than two weeks from the time that we're speaking right now. Mm-hmm. When people are coming to this show, when they are sitting in the theater to see this, maybe the first time, like some of your actors that you mentioned, the first time back in a theater since the pandemic began, what is your hope that they leave with? Whether that's a feeling, an emotion, a, a message, what are you hoping that audiences get from seeing this show live and in person and in Atlanta? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I think for me, um, I mean, it's it's twofold, but I think the, the main takeaway for me is I would really like people to leave feeling empowered to take action in their own life so that it can it can go the way that they wish for it to go, um, whether that's an acting change in their own personal life or acting change in their community. I just want people to leave empowered and and I want them to leave seeing you know, the mixture of all the things that life is, hilarity, adventure, romance, heartbreak, um, all of that. And I think our show captures that 
Um, obviously, I also want everybody to leave singing everything we've written, but you know, <laughs> yeah. beggars can't be choosers, I guess. <laughs> Chase, what about what about you? You uh, you're obviously a really good working team, but I, do you have different things individually that you're hoping people take away? No, the the message is I completely mirror um, Jessica's sentiment on the, you know, the message that I hope you leave with, but on a, you know, more broad spectrum, I just hope it's, it's what we truly believe it is a great new American musical, Mm -hmm. a great piece of theater where you can leave singing the songs, thinking about the story and and just talking about it afterwards and, and, and something you want to, tell your friends about and see again and and just enjoy enjoy live theater uh, enjoy something new and original and uh, and you know performed right there in Atlanta and just <laughs> be like wow I cannot believe it. you know I, I just hope you're like I can't believe this happened right here in our town that's, oh, that's, yeah. that's the biggest dream World premiere of the Pretty Pants Bandit will be playing at Georgia Ensemble Theater from March 31st through April 17th. I will be there, I believe, on April 9th. So if anyone happens to be in the Atlanta area, Roswell is just a, a northern suburb of Atlanta. If anybody ends up at that performance, um, let me know and uh, maybe we'll get a chance to uh, chat about that and other things there. All right, Jen, you mentioned the fact that you were going to go to a play slash musical for the first time in two and a half years. You were going to be doing a few more than just uh, Twilight as the uh, Pantages Theater has announced its 2022-2023 Broadway season. And you have already scored some uh, tickets to, I don't know if it's that one or another one uh, of the national tours coming through town. Um, The Dr. Phillips Center for the Performing Arts has also recently announced their series here in Orlando. So I wanted to talk about what some of the shows are that are touring, what some of the major cities, including the ones near us, um, and and kind of just talk about national tours in general. So looking at the list of shows that are going to be at the Pantages, I don't think those are the shows you're seeing. Where are the touring productions that you have tickets to going to be, Jen? I'm going to be seeing Rent for my 15th time. Nice. And that will be at the Dolby Theater, um, which I think a lot of people will be watching this Sunday at the Oscar uh, I know ceremony. I will, yes. And a- after the Oscars clear out, we drove by Hollywood Boulevard last night, and it's just a nightmare. So I can't wait. When you're in LA, you can't wait until the Oscars are over because you lose six blocks. Um, 
but I'm seeing rent on April 12th. I am actually not tour sure if it's a national tour or a non, last time I saw a non-ec. Yeah, it is a non-equity tour. It is part of a lot of a national tour seasons, but it's not part of the one that was announced. So it's still part of the 2021-2022 season. Right, so I'm going to see that on April 12th. So that'll actually be my first back to the theater yeah. show. Because Twilight's not till April 29th. And then in May, we have tickets to Town at the Amundsen over at the Center Theater Group in downtown LA. And you have seen Town. You saw it in New York on like a one-day stopover when you were flying home for the holidays or something, right? I did. I got to see the original cast. And um, I was there with my boyfriend, but he didn't go with me. He had some family that he was seeing. And I talked about it so much that I talked him and seven other friends into going to see it with me at the Amundsen. So we have, uh, there's nine of us going Wonderful. in May. Wonderful. Yeah. That's great. That's great. And I don't think they have announced their 2022-2023 season uh, just yet, but um, that's always a great season. They currently have the Lehman Trilogy running right now, which is one of the most incredible pieces of theater I've ever seen. It is a straight play, but it's unlike any straight play that anyone is that I've ever seen. Um, if anyone is thinking about getting tickets to see that through April 10th, I would highly recommend it. It is long. It is three and a half hours. It is almost completely just three men talking the whole time, but it somehow is incredibly magnetic and, and captivating. So would recommend that one in the Los Angeles area as well. But while we're in LA, Jen, let's talk about the Pantages Broadway and Hollywood season that was recently announced. And because everything is huge in Los Angeles, they have eight shows uh, in this season, plus an add-on the season will start with the national tour of Jagged Little Pill in September. Then in October, you will have uh, the great Richard Thomas, who we discussed uh, on a <laughs> Today on Broadway episode in To Kill a Mockingbird. Then in November, you will have Annie. In January, one of my favorite recent shows that is far too much maligned, Mean Girls, will be there. Then there's a bit of a jump, and I don't know if this has to do with other things happening at um, the Pantages, but in April, you will see Six, which I cannot recommend highly enough. That is such a great show uh, when my brother and niece and uh, cousin or actually first cousin once removed went and saw it on Broadway during our trip here recently they just talked about it for the entire week so highly recommend that then in May you're going to getting hairspray June is Tina the Tina Turner musical then in July will be Beetlejuice and then the uh, the add-on uh, will be the Lion King so any of those specifically um interest you out of that list jen well definitely six because i've been listening to that for a long time yeah um hairspray i it, that's a possibility um but i think i would choose mean girls over hairspray the hairspray national tour i i believe it is equity but the person playing uh edna turnblatt is andrew levitt who i believe um a lot of people know by... From Buffy? No. He, from RuPaul's Drag Race, uh, Nina West is his uh, drag name. So he was on season 11, and he, he was named Miss Congeniality for that season. Um, so has done a ton of other drag race related stuff since then. So Nina West slash Andrew Levitt is playing Edna 
uh, in that national tour. All right, so coming back to my neck of the woods with the Dr. Phillips Center, you will hear some overlap in these shows. It is another fairly big season with multiple add-ons. Um, we are actually going to be starting our season in October with six. Um, that'll be running its normal week. But then at the end of October, we will get a, a three to four week um, return engagement of Hamilton. Um, then in November, we actually have a holdover from this current season, which will be Hades town. Um, it was supposed to open our 2021-2022 season, but because of COVID and delays, it got pushed back to November of 2022. So that'll actually be the third sh third show of the fall, but the last show of the current season. Then in January, we'll get back with Tina. Then at the end of January, we'll have a three-day stop for a one of our first uh, of two add-ons, and that'll be Riverdance 25th anniversary show. Then we will also have a multi-week add-on run of Wicked. Then in February, we will have Pretty Woman the Musical, uh, followed by March with To Kill a Mockingbird. Then in April, we will have the newly announced national tour of Chicago. Then in May, we will have My Fair Lady, the Lincoln Center uh, National Tour production. And then in June, we will also have Beetlejuice. So I, of course, am very excited about the fact that Six is coming and and Hamilton, of course. Um, but I'm interested to see this My Fair Lady. I did not love it on Broadway, despite my normal love for that show. I didn't love the Bart Shear directed production, but so much of it was made to work because of the huge space at the Vivian Beaumont Theater at the Lincoln Center, at Lincoln Center. So I'm interested to see how they are able to kind of modify this huge, big, moving set um, for a national tour. So I'll be, I'll be very interested in, in that as well. If your city has not yet announced their national tour schedule for 2022-2023, they will very soon. They seem to be doing these earlier and earlier, which I guess is is makes sense with trying to get people to subscribe coming out of the pandemic. Want to give people as many opportunities to hear that marketing. And then lastly, Matt, um, incorporating some television and movies. I recently saw the film Cyrano, starring Peter Dinklage. Um, it's unclear if it's 2021 or 2022, because it was released for the Oscars, but then yeah. it was delayed coming out in 2022, so it's recent. Let's just leave it at that. Anyway, it is um, a musical retelling of the classic play by Edmund Rostand, Cyrano de Bergerac. I'm sure you know it's the story of a man with an unbelievably large nose who falls in love with the beautiful Roxanne. In this version, instead of someone having a big nose, they are having a little person play Cyrano. And with both versions, Cyrano feels that this is going to inhibit someone from loving them. And it's just a different take on the story, whereas it's really just they're not trusting enough in, in love and... and and Roxanne, but you know, it's about self, self-consciousness. However, Cyrano is a beautiful writer and a poet, and he is able to make Roxanne fall in love with him through his letters. However, he has to do it through Christian. 
So you're familiar with the story, right? Yeah, I actually saw the off-Broadway production of this musical um, with Peter Dinklage and Jasmine Cephas Jones as Roxanne. Um, I guess okay. that would have been either 2020 or 2019. So yeah. So this is a film by Joe Wright. Um, the, I haven't seen a lot of his films. I've, I've seen Atonement, which I loved, and Anna Karenina. But he's very good at tone. He's very good at um, set. Uh, what is it called? Production design. Yeah. Um, you're very you're very in that world when he directs. It's beautifully melancholy. But I think that I have watched the movie Roxanne from 1987 starring Steve Martin mm-hmm. and Daryl Hannah too much because I forgot just how tragic this is and was a little yeah. surprised at how emotional and um, tragically it ends. So um, it didn't get a lot of acclaim. Like a critic seemed Surprisingly to like it. so. Yeah, like I, I, they thought it would be a, a real awards contender. And I believe the only things that it really got an, an award nomination for at the Academy Awards was costume design. Yeah, but it's, it's for me, I thought it was a beautiful film. I, um, I really, really loved it. And you have to really like the music of the band The National. They did all the music and it's very, it's a very um, consistent type of music. It's not something you want to listen to if you have a, a full day ahead of you, shall we say. But it was really beautiful. And I I watched it kind of like, oh, I might as well cross this one off the list and found myself really mesmerized. And Peter Dinklage is a, an amazing, amazing actor. Mm-hmm. And I, I just was overwhelmed at how much I liked this, kind of going into it thinking that I wouldn't. What was your take on the music? Because to me, the music was the, the, the biggest letdown of the off-Broadway show. It was also very... The music added to the drabness of the set uh, design and the lighting design off-Broadway. Obviously, based off what you're saying, it sounds much more luxurious and beautiful on screen. Did you feel that that was tempered by kind of the uniformity and, in my opinion, dourness of a lot of the music? No, I felt that it added to it. I felt like it set a tone and you were either going to immerse yourself in this tone or you were going to be really turned off by it but it it seems like they made the choice to go for it and i guess i kind of fell for it <laughs> yeah nothing wrong but with that. I, I can see what you're saying and you might be turned off by it if that's what you felt when you watched the play because i don't there's there's no big showstopper there's no <laughs> uh romantic atmosphere or anything to come in and lighten the mood for a second it's it's a downer but i i just really really enjoyed it yeah, unlike in Roxanne, like one of the other things that makes Cyrano such a strong character is the fact that he is an incredible soldier. Like he is a, a, a captain, he is a leader, he is an incredible swordsman, and that comes into play quite a bit in this version. Um, Steve Martin, as far as I remember from Roxanne, was not doing any um, sword fighting. So it definitely brings a much different uh, feeling to the show than the romantic 1980s comedy vibe that you know from that version yeah i mean it's definitely something that i would say you have to be in the mood for which i guess maybe isn't the best description for a film but 
I guess I was just in the mood for it and I just fell yeah, for it. So absolutely. I really liked it. And one other film that is theater related that I want to mention that I won't get into very much because it's not actually based on a on a theatrical property, although a theatrical property is very much at the heart of the story, is the potential by the time you listen to this, depending on when you listen to this, might be Academy Award winning um, international feature Drive My Car. Um, Drive My Car is a Japanese film that centers on a theater actor and director launching a multilingual production of Uncle Vanya. And the, sh- the film's story is about much more than that. It's about the loss of his wife and uh, the fact that he has to have a driver while he is working uh, on this production. And it-, it goes into a lot more than that. But um, Uncle Vanya plays a huge part in this story and it is weaved in in a really creative way throughout even when they're not focusing on the theatrical production aspect of of this story so it is streaming on hbo max it is a show that i think has a very good chance of winning best international feature Um, it is also a best picture nominee so if you have hbo max and three hours to put aside to read um uh closed captioning because it is mostly in other languages although there is some english spoken Uh, in the film. I would recommend it. I thought it was a really, really moving uh, film and a really cool exploration of seeing legitimate scenes of theater artists doing their thing um, in another language, which is not something that we see. Most of the time, in the rare occasions that we see that in a popular film, especially a best picture film, it's in English and it's a little stylized, but they're actually doing the work in a lot of this, which I thought was fascinating as somebody who loves the process of creating theater. So um, Drive My Car uh, on HBO Max, Best Picture uh, nominee, uh, definitely worth your time if you've got three hours to set aside for it. And Matt, we're actually going to be talking more in depth about the Oscars. We will. Um, We will be releasing another episode of Some Like It Pop this weekend. We used to do this podcast a long time ago, and every year we would do our wish, want, and will list for the Oscars. So Matt and I are going to record that and it'll come out this weekend as well. So thank you for joining us on This Week in Theater. You can follow Broadway Radio at Broadway Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me on Twitter and Medium at Eponine Q and Matt at Matt. You can always reach out to us with suggestions for regional theater productions, and we shall see you next time. 